In its quest to provide an open forum for discussion of controversial issues, this station allows hosts and their guests to express themselves without any significant censorship. You are advised that any view expressed by the host or their guest are not necessarily the views of the owners or management of Toginet Radio, Togi Entertainment, or the Owners Group, Inc. It's time for Paying It Forward with Josephine Jirasi. Everyone has learned lessons in life during their lifetime. Some good, some bad. But from everyone, there has been something learned. And now it's time to share that knowledge. It's called Paying It Forward. Here, these lessons learned are then paid forward to you. With you, Paying It Forward too. Josephine put her professional career on hold after the birth of her first child and turned her attention to being a full-time mother. Well, three kids later, Josephine started her own company, MyMomKnowsBest.com and Glovies, but was dismayed by a lack of information that people would share to help entrepreneurs be successful. That's where Paying It Forward was born. This is Paying It Forward on Twiggynet.com. And now, here's your host, Josephine Jirasi. Well, welcome everyone. It's Josephine here today, and we are going to have a really great show today. It's going to be on a very important topic, and all my listeners out there get to learn from the very expensive mistakes I've made personally in my own business. So with that, let's start our show off today with my lesson learned this week, my business tip. So I am actually in the process of redoing the packaging for my Glovies product. My goal is to actually um, have all of the shoppers in the retail stores be able to look at my packaging and within two seconds, we want them to know exactly what's in that packaging. So I am actually redesigning it and I am looking for graphics designers and packaging um, designers to send me quotes. And I just wanted to say my business tip of the week is take the extra step. Out of 21 quotes that I had received, just one individual actually went the extra mile and he took my packaging and he did a quick mock-up for me to show me what his style is and what he could do for me. And I have to tell you, out of 21 people, his went right to the very top of my list. So that's my business tip of the week. So take that extra step. So with that, I would like to introduce my guest. My guest today is Richard Apley. Um, Richard is a chief patent officer. He has a BS in civil engineer. He has a law degree from University of Baltimore. Dick is a registered U.S. Patent and Trade Office patent agent. He worked for the U.S. Patent Trade Office for 35 years. So, With that, I guess you guys can figure out my topic of the day is all about patents. And as my listeners know, boy, oh boy, I have spent a ton of money for attorneys who, unfortunately, I think maybe might have steered me down the wrong road. But you know what? We're going to throw all these questions at Dick today, and I'm actually going to get a better understanding of the real true meaning behind patents, whether they're really worthwhile. Um, Perhaps there are certain people that really absolutely definitely need patents, and maybe there are some that don't. But with that, I would like to welcome Dick Apley to Paying It Forward this week. 
Good morning, Dick. Good morning, Josephine. It's a pleasure to be on the radio show with you, and it's a pleasure to uh, be a resource to all your listeners. I look forward to our time together, and hopefully I can pay it forward for you, too. Well, I'm sure you you already have paid it forward to me, but I know that you are such a busy attorney, Dick. You've been traveling, you know, all week, and here you are giving us an hour of your time. So thank you so much for that. So let's get started. Let's um, let's tell everybody, do you want to add anything to your background, Dick? Is there anything else um, you can tell us, you know, your law firm that you're now working with? So why don't you lead us up to the way as to what made you decide to become a lawyer and bring us up to today? All right. Thank you, Josephine. Uh, let me take a few minutes just to tell your audience about my background. Uh, i went to uh, Rensselaer Polytech up in Troy, New York, where it's probably snowing by now. (laughs) It was one of the colder parts of New York State, and I was a civil engineer background there, and then the patent office came knocking at the door for recruiting engineers to become patent examiners. And it sounded like a very interesting job working with inventors trying to protect their uh, ideas and their creations. Uh, And later on, I began to realize that patents are indeed a way to protect one's intellectual property. We'll get to that later, but I just wanted to throw that out, that it is an important part of one's uh, intellectual property protection. So I started at the patent office, and I moved around in different work areas, trying to always gain knowledge of various inventions, whether it was civil engineering background or mechanical engineering. I finally wound up in uh, the medical devices and realized that's a fascinating field regarding artificial body parts as well as microsurgery. Uh And I did that for about 36, 37 years, and then two years I was director of the uh, Office of Independent Inventor Programs, which was the highlight to my career because it gave me a chance to implement certain uh, policies and procedures and the Patent Office website to help independent inventors and small business people where they could go to the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office website. And let me give them a, a plug. It's USPTO.gov. And it's a remarkable site. It answers a lot of questions about intellectual property, patents, as well as trademark information. And I encourage all your listeners to start all their due diligence at that website, USPTO.gov. And then when, uh, so for two years, I traveled around the country explaining the patent process to different inventor groups, different um, small business groups, explaining the importance of intellectual property as a way to proceed. And then I retired from the government after about 38 years and took the job as chief patent officer at Littman Law in Manassas, Virginia. Um, Littman Law, the reason why I went there 
was because they concentrated on the small inventor, the small businessman, the university system, where they are doing a lot of uh, cutting-edge research and have a lot of good technology coming out of the universities. And we work with those kinds of clientele. We leave the uh, the big companies to the to different law firms, and we concentrate on the uh, emerging, what I would call the emerging technology from the small inventor and the small universities, and we try to help them as much as possible. So in, in a sense, that's how we pay it back to our inventors and creative citizens. Absolutely. And you know what, Dick, for the mom entrepreneurs out there who do need a law firm, I must say, I went the other route with a big law firm that didn't necessarily specialize in the small business arena. And I am so much more happier with the personal attention that I'm actually getting from Littman Law. So it's a great law firm. So, um, We'll let them Thank go you. to that website too, Dick. You know how can we? How can somebody reach you? Lickmanlaw dot com. Okay, good. And now, uh, if they click on Chief Patent Office, they'll see my face. It's one of my better photos. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have to say, Dick, I apologize. I had trouble getting your photo on the TogiNet website. So I've got your bio there, and it came up with a little X. So I I, I apologize about that, but. All right, so we can see your photo on the Littman Law website. All right, so Dick, now let's get started here. So I would love to know, I'm going to take you through the process that I've gone through. So my questions, I'm sure, are going to be very similar to any, you know, mom or dad out there who has come up with a product. So my first question is, what is the absolute first thing an inventor should do when they come up with the, an idea for a product? My recommendation to inventors when they get that wow moment or that light bulb goes off, it truly is a flash. They, I'm in awe of inventors since I uh, really never invented anything. I'm in awe of inventors when that light bulb goes off. They tell me it's quite an invigorating feeling when they truly get that idea that's, that they say, wow, why didn't they think of this? Who, nobody knows who that they is, but we all know what it means. <laughs> right. And that light bulb goes off and they say, this will work. And they run right down to their basement or they talk to their uh, spouse about it or a friend or their brother or brother-in-law and they say, you know, how we burnt our hands on this or how we couldn't get this up or couldn't move that. Um, machinery it was too heavy well how about if we do such and such it's that moment when they when they get creative they should just take a deep breath i always call it the 10 second rule just relax and work it out and realize okay i have an idea what do i do now the first thing i always recommend is go to a patent attorney or a patent agent they will talk to you about it and almost everyone will recommend doing some sort of professional patent search to see whether or not it's been done. Why get excited over something that's already out there? At least know what you, what the road ahead looks like. Do your due diligence. I always preach 
due diligence, which at this point in the process means do a professional search. You can okay. do one at uh, any local, any library. There are patent depository libraries throughout the United States, one located in every state. And they will help you do a, a search on your own. At a minimum, do a, a search on your own. At, a, at the minimum, use the Internet. Just type in some of your keywords, and it would be remarkable what information is available at that first step. Oh, yeah. See, that's such great advice because some people just don't realize that you do have a great idea, but it's already out there. And it's so important to do your due diligence, you know. But I can't believe how quick the first segment of Paying It Forward has gone. We're going to be back real shortly with Dick Apley, who's talking all about patents today. So if you want to know anything about having a patent, this is the show to listen to today. So we'll be back shortly. Thank you. We'll be right back with more Paying It Forward with Josephine Girasi right after these on Toginet.com. Believe in your fairy tale to make your zing come true. I love it. Debbie Glickman and Deanna Cohen know it. Join these soul sisters on Toginet.com. Believe in your fairy tale to make your zing come true. Showcases two sides. One, to help entrepreneurs showcase their products and tell their story of their happily ever after. And two, to interview people who have realized their own fairy tale and doing something to benefit others. This show is here to help folks who have an idea and want to get it off the ground, as well as to inspire people to make the world a better place by doing something extraordinary or out of the box to help others. Both of these entrepreneurs have their own businesses and websites. With more information on their passions and successes, first for Debbie, FairyTaleWishesInc.com. And for Deanna, TheNextBigZing.com. Believe in your fairy tale to make your zing come true. With the Soul Sisters, Debbie Glickman and Deanna Cohen on Toginet.com. Mind Matters is the show that dares to ask what's on your mind. Take this opportunity to join Dr. Larry Ross, clinical psychologist and Joan Duhane, licensed clinical social worker, as they combined have over 50 years of experience in dealing with your mind. Fridays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, only on Toginet Radio. Welcome back to Paying It Forward, the show dedicated to helping every entrepreneur be more successful. As we discuss accomplishments, lessons learned, and sharing those ideas. Now, let's get back to Paying It Forward with Josephine Girasi on toginet.com. Well, welcome back, everyone. It's Josephine, and I'm just talking to Dick Apley here all about patents today. And I was just asking Dick, so what happens when an inventor comes up with an idea? And Dick said that it's super important to do your due diligence and have it professionally done. But we were just talking about the possibility of an inventor doing their own research first. Uh, could you clarify just for um, the listeners, Dick, um, how does somebody go about doing their own search? Is it just through Google that, like you said, they type in certain keywords that might apply to their their um, product? Or Due diligence is a term that, that people use because it covers, it's a generic term and it covers a number of concepts 
involving certain levels of investigation of a situation. The easiest thing for an inventor to do is, of course, do an online search, depending okay. upon which one you use, Google, Yahoo, or many of the others. But that's the quickest way. Another way to do it, as I mentioned before, is visiting one of the patent and trademark depository libraries. They're located in every state. If you go to the Patent Office website, USPTO.gov, and look at their libraries, they'll tell you what campus. They're usually on one of the campuses or in one of the uh, larger libraries in, in one of the cities of the state. Uh, I think in Texas there are about three or four, actually. Um, and you could go to the library and um, the librarian will sit you in front of a computer that's hooked up to the patent office database and just they'll even help you find a what we call classification for your invention if you're looking for something like uh, artificial body parts if you go to the index they have them all listed heart lungs whatever and they're all under artificial body parts I'll throw out the class if any of your listeners want to go. It's class 623, and you open that up, and then it lists everything you want to know, and you just click on it, and every patent that's been issued in that subject is there. So if you invented a new hip uh, implant, spend about an hour or two looking at hip implants and see if indeed your invention is new. Even if it isn't new, there may be certain features that are different, and that's where you need a professional to answer that ultimate question. Is it different enough to file for a patent application? So that's, in a sense, the due diligence I was referring to okay. that one can do on their own. And if they go on the Patent Office website and click search, they could do it on their own right from their desk. It's yeah, that, that's uh, great. that easy. Okay, so Dick, so what's the next step after we realize that there's absolutely nothing out there um, pertaining to your idea? What do you think the next step would be? Um, so what if well, we have a friend? Yeah. Okay, go no, ahead. No, one is to shy away from and invest, again, part of the due diligence is to make sure that if you're dealing with companies that promise great rewards for a fee that they'll market it for you. Be careful. Again, the Patent Office has a list of companies that people have complained against. They call it the complaint area. Just go on complaints and see if those companies are indeed listed where your fellow listeners are, in a sense, paying it forward to other people. They're putting you on alert that this has been my experience with some of these companies. So be careful. And Dick, I must say, the, these companies that are actually like sharks that go after the inventors, I can't even tell you. When I came up with my idea and I filed my patent, all of a sudden my mailbox got inundated with these companies saying, we can make you millions. Just right. you know, <laughs> hand everything over to us and you know, we'll do TV commercials. We'll do all of this for you. And I think that's exactly what you're pertaining to. 
That's right. Just be careful. Again, that's part of that due diligence because the minute you get an idea or even after you file, you will be inundated by all these companies saying, oh, it's a great idea. No one's ever invented the wheel before. And you're sort of scratching your head and you're saying, how did they find out about me? <laughs> Where did this yes. come from? I invented, yes. I didn't invent the wheel. I invented certain spokes for the wheel, but not the wheel. <laughs> right. But it's they're promising so you all these rewards and the entrance into the marketplace, which is the key for most of inventors. It, it may come as a surprise, but the patent system is the easy part of the whole thing. And it may surprise people, but that's easy because you have people helping you and you have federal officials at the Patent and Trademark Office that are trying to help you. They're not really trying to either steal your invention or reject it out of spite or anything like that. They're not in it for, for money. They, they are truly working for your benefit. Yeah. So you just said, um, I think some inventors are probably a little paranoid about somebody stealing their invention at what point is somebody paranoid or is somebody smart like what do you suggest like i just remember reading a marketing book and the marketing book said you know what don't be so paranoid about somebody stealing your invention because they have to go through a lot of steps to get to where you're at, that you actually do yourself an injustice by keeping it to yourself because there are so many people out there who are willing to help you. So what do you say about that, Dick? Uh, let's let's go back a little and first define the the patent process. In the United States, the patent process is first to invent. There are pending bills on Capitol Hill to change us to what the rest of the world uses first to file. In other words, whoever files the patent application first is considered the true inventor. We don't have that, Josephine. Our system is based upon who is the first to invent. So I would recommend um, to uh, your listeners and anybody who's starting the invention process is to keep a diary of their inventing. Date, okay. Get it dated, signed by somebody who understands what's written on the page. So you have a record of what is called your conception date. When did you truly conceive of this idea? And then day after day, how you worked on it. Keep it in a bound inventor's book, not a loose-leaf book. That doesn't count because you can, of course, insert pages. So it should be in a bound book. And you keep track of your invention date and what you've done with it. Also, the U.S. law says that, say you did disclose it to people. Okay. The law says you have one year to protect it, meaning file a patent application on that idea. The rest of the world says if you disclosed it before you filed, you basically have lost a lot of your rights. 
So you have to be careful about disclosing it. I would recommend not disclosing it until you file something at the patent office, and that could be a provisional patent application or a non-provisional patent application. The provisional patent application is patent pending status, but it is not examined and it only protects you for one year and at the end of the year you have to decide what you're going to do. But I would be on, uh, if, if we were taking a vote, I would vote non-disclosure. Oh, non-disclosure. Okay, that was my non-disclosure, next question no, right. okay, Do so not talk about it we... until... Yeah, so that should probably be one of the very first things when you go to an attorney to tell them that you have an idea is to have that attorney come up with a basic non-disclosure so that anybody you have any conversations about your invention and you haven't filed that patent yet, that um, you would just have them sign that non-disclosure, correct, Dick? Right, exactly. Uh, Obviously, your attorney is under the attorney-client privilege, so... That's a different story. You have to tell them what you invented so they could help you. But for everybody else, every law firm has their own way of recommending. Most company, in my experience, most companies, uh, when you show up after you file something, uh, have their own non-disclosure agreements that, that they have already prepared by their legal staff. So you're signing theirs. Okay. Because they want okay. to protect their their rights, too, because they may be working on a similar product. So the system is well aware of these non-disclosure agreements. That's not a surprising fact to anybody. Okay. All right. That sounds great. But I have a quick question. When I love the idea. I wish I would have known about the Bound Invention Inventor's Book, you know, and the conception date. Because I'll tell you, I had my aha moment in a public restroom with my child when we were having when I was having lunch with my girlfriends now I wonder I guess I can just go back if I even have a receipt I can specifically remember when it was I guess that would be my conception date and the idea about the bound inventors book I guess from that moment forward I could have started writing in that book but my question is being that I didn't do that I do have a lot of emails that I was sending to people about my idea when I first came up with it. Are emails acceptable, Dick? I would think so. If they, it depends on the how well protected and dated they are, and obviously, uh, the what what's really important is what's said in the emails too, how it describes your invention. But all this is. All this would be part of the conception package. You never know. Uh-huh. But um, I, my, my theory is protect everything. Keep all receipts. Okay. Uh, because you never know what, what, what will be uh, valuable, what would be evidentiary, or things like that, especially to the patent office, because you may want to send those to the patent examiner to prove a certain date to the examiner during the uh, prosecution of your application. Dates are very important. Yeah, I think you're so right about that, 
Dick, you know, the thing about a lot of entrepreneurs out there, especially the mom entrepreneurs, is that we have such crazy busy lives taking care of our house, our children, and coming up with an invention and starting our own business that a lot of times that paperwork kind of goes to the side. But I think that's a great idea. Even if you just get like a Tupperware box with a lid and all of your receipts, just keep putting it in. Just don't throw them away. So I think you're so right. Keeping receipts with um, dates on them is super important. But with that, we're going to take a quick break and we will be back shortly talking all about um, patents with Dick Apley. Thanks, everyone. We'll be right back with more Paying It Forward with Josephine Girasi right after these on Toginet.com. Everybody, this is Pete Dix of Beatles and Beyond. You're listening to George Harrison jamming in the background here as I'm preparing the next show for you. So why don't you listen to Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix on this radio station? and me is on Toginet, a delightful, thoughtful, serious, and not-so-serious call-in show with Cecil Murphy and Twyla Belk. Tuesday nights at 8, 7 central on Toginet.com. You know Cease is the veteran author from 90 Minutes in Heaven, Gifted Hands, When a Man You Loved Was Abused, and many other books, as well as a mentor for writers. And Twyla Belk is an effervescent force known as the Gotta Tell Somebody Gal. She's also a writer and motivational speaker who's always bragging on God. For more on Cecil Murphy, go to his website, Cecil Murphy, that's P-H-E-Y, dot com. And for Twyla, gottatellsomebody.com. The show, Season Me, is a far-reaching, faith-based, shared conversation and call-in show with questions welcome. A chance to get everything out in the open. From questions about writing, to surviving sexual abuse, to the topics of the day. All from a Christian worldview, to help you. Season Me, Cecil Murphy, Twyla Belk. Tuesday evenings today, 7 Central on Toginet.com. Welcome back to Paying It Forward, the show dedicated to helping every entrepreneur be more successful as we discuss accomplishments, lessons learned, and sharing those ideas. Now, let's get back to Paying It Forward with Josephine Girasi on Toginet.com. Welcome back, everyone. It's Josephine, and today is all about patents. We're getting to learn so much about patents, and um, this is really an informational interview for me as well. So I hope everybody feels as great as I do that I'm learning so much. But with that, I'm going to ask um, our patent officer here, um, Dick, so who needs a patent and who doesn't? That's a that's a fascinating question because it, let, let's go back to almost the beginning of our republic, 1790, when the, the when the constitution was in effect, and the founding uh, fathers of our country realized the important of, of importance of intellectual property, and they said in Article One, Section Eight, that the holder of these ideas mainly they did uh 
patent owners or inventors, if they get a patent, they will have a certain amount of time, or if you will, a monopoly on their idea. And what rights do they get? Well, the Constitution says you have the right to exclude others from making, using, or selling, or importing your claimed invention if you have a patent on it. But listen to what that Constitution said. It says to exclude others. So in a sense, you're playing defense. It's not so much uh, that you could take your patent and start marketing it right away. So there are important things to realize that the patent is meant to exclude others from making that claimed invention as opposed to giving you the right to going out there and marketing it, marketing it immediately. So that's the first thing to realize is just because you have a patent does not mean that you could walk over other people's rights who also have patents on similar subject matter. So you have to make sure that your idea, whether it's patented or not, say you just wanted to market your idea. Mm-hmm. The, the thing you want to do is, okay, I don't have really the money to get a patent. I don't even think I need a patent. My preliminary due diligence, as Dick Apley recommended doing a search, showed me that it's out there already. But I think I can market it. I have a great name for my product. I'm gifted at website design. I can sell it over the Internet. My packaging looks great. I have a great name. I want to get a trademark on my name to protect it from uh, from abuse. I, the name can be registered with the trademark side of the Patent and Trademark Office. So, But I'm afraid that if I market it, I may be infringing on somebody else's patent rights. How do I protect myself? Well, what most uh, professional uh, searchers will do, or law firms like our law firm, we recommend a freedom to operate or right to use search, which is an in-depth search of the prior patents to see if indeed you are infringing on somebody else's claimed invention. It's a very uh, uh, tedious and very expensive uh, process because you have to read the claims of every patent that's close to see if the claims are broad enough to cover your uh, idea that you were going to market. So that's one thing that I would recommend to everybody is even if you're going for a patent or especially if you're not going for a patent, to get that freedom to operate search done to make sure that you will not be infringing somebody else's valid patent that still has some term left to it. If if the term is expired, then this is uh, not relevant to that discussion. I mean, you can still bring out products that the patents are long uh, the enforcement period has long ended, but right, we're talking so about those that are still in force. You have to be careful that you're not infringing on those. So what happens, Dick, if somebody actually does go through all the steps that you said and they think that they're not infringing on um, somebody uh, else's patent? Um, and in actuality, they do all their marketing, they do their website, they actually even get the product on the shelves of retail stores. What happens if um, somebody who 
has the patent feels that you are infringing on them. Is that where the cease and desist comes in? Decease, cease and desist letter, it's called. Okay. And and you you would be paying attention to that, or else they'll be calling you you defendant. Okay. <laughs> Okay. Don't mean yeah. to be lied about it, but that's yeah. what happens uh, if you persist. I mean, it's a very that's where it gets expensive when you get that cease and desist letter, where you, in a sense, being put on notice that you are infringing infringing somebody's patent. Uh, the, uh, the claims of up. somebody's yeah. patent. Yes, it's very, it's very, it gets very serious at that point, Josephine, because, and that's yeah. when. My feeling about the whole thing, Dick, was that I would rather um, pay the money up front and do all of my homework and create that foundation to make sure that you never get in the position of the cease and desist. Right, exactly. And while the system is not... 100% certain and there are no guarantees, you just want to cut down your risk. That's why that freedom to operate search is so tedious and so expensive because you're reading every single relevant patent. You're reading the claims which are key to any kind of infringement suit. You're also getting the uh, ordering up the prosecution history of dozens of patents to see what took place at the patent office between the inventor of those patents and the patent examiner. Okay. So it is tedious and it it gets expensive, but uh, it's one way to protect yourself, and it it should be done. Along with the the most you could do is say, well, I did the best I can. It looked like I was clear or what right. you know i had that right to use or freedom to operate as as people call it and i am proceeding to me the trademark is very important also i've known uh numerous inventors who uh, have sold their their name to companies as opposed to the underlying product the companies may have products that are similar but they like the name okay <laughs> The name, uh, some names are very cute and very descriptive. Right. Don't you wish you owned the name Duracell or Everetti or Interstate Batteries? I mean, those are great names. (laughs) Yeah, I think you're so right. So, Dick, a lot of times um, in the conversation, we were saying that, you know, it could be very expensive to go for a patent. Can you tell us, like, about how much do you think it should really cost from start to finish for somebody to go for a patent? And I know every case is different, but is there any way that you could give somebody just an estimate? Like, how much does it cost to maybe just file the patent, you know, the application? Well, obviously, uh, Josephine, it depends on the subject matter. A jet turbine engine is going to be a lot different than a barbell. I mean, that's that's obvious. Right. Uh, so there's no way to pinpoint the exact uh, cost involved. Um, but if if you're doing a business plan, that's why I always recommend going to. Uh, law firms and and sit down with their patent staff 
and get an estimate. Go to two, three, four. Yeah. Don't okay. be afraid to tell them that you're looking around. I mean, they understand that. They're not going to give you hours and hours of time, of course, but they'll consult with you and give you the benefit of their um, uh, advice, and they could give you an estimate on that. And you, then if you go to four or five law firms, you'll get a feel for what the cost will be. On the normal invention, let's just talk about average as okay, opposed yeah. to the simple barbell and let's kick out the nuclear reactor. I mean, those are the extremes. But your average uh, non-provisional patent application has a government fee of $545 associated with it. That's just a government fee to file. To prepare the documents, the drawings, the claims, and everything associated with it, if you're penciling in a budget for a business plan, I would say the average is about $6,000. Okay. Yeah, Just to I file. Think that's right and on then there target. are, yeah. Then there are other prosecution costs during the life of the patent. Remember, the patent office is about 18, 20 months behind. So, for that 18, 20 months, you're patent pending, but nothing is happening with your patent application. Right. It truly is a long, long process, but hopefully the reason why we go after the patent is so that if a big company comes to us and says, hey, we'd like to, you know, purchase your company, um, it's so much more valuable knowing that you've got that patent. I guess that's what we're all aiming for. That's right. I I call it my 4P rule, Josephine. Okay. Patents, protection, profit, and make sure your invention is practical. Oh, that's great. Okay, that's great. So we have the 4P rule. So, all right, with that, I can't believe how quick this time is going. But, um, Dick, can you tell us a a little bit more or help us go through the patent process just a little bit more? Sure. Um, uh, Let's assume, again, there are many ways to protect your idea, but let's assume you did it the the conventional way, which is a a non-provisional utility patent application. The process is after a certain amount of waiting time, the examiner who who is assigned to that case, remember the patent office is broken up into different what they call tech centers. There's electrical, chemical, biotech, mechanical, chemistry. So they break it up into subject matter, and then it goes to the uh, certain art unit, and then it goes to a specific examiner who is the expert at that kind of device. And the examiner picks it up and will conduct a search. That's the first thing an examiner will do is to search to see whether or not is. And there are a few statutes. There are so many different sections of the patent statute, but it comes down into just a few simple ones that I think your uh, listeners would like to know about. The first one is that the subject matter has to be patentable subject matter, not just an abstract idea or a nat- or you know, you cannot get a patent on F equals MA or E equals MC square. I mean, that's 
not what we're talking about. We're talking about patentable subject matter. Then another section says you then have to describe the invention so people understand it. Okay, so Dick, we're going to get back to this in just a few moments. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with our last segment of Paying It Forward. But great patent information. Thanks, Dick. We'll be right back with more Paying It Forward with Josephine Girasi right after these on Toginet.com. Okay, we will. We're going to teach you how to tell your money where to go. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Learn how to be a savvy investor from someone who has your best interest at heart. Pam Otten is a financial advisor who loves to help successful business owners and entrepreneurs understand the mysteries of the investment world. And she's not afraid to share that knowledge. Pam is an unashamed Christian and qualified kingdom advisor, which means she's trained and committed to integrating biblical principles into her financial advice. Pam believes investing isn't rocket science. This is the financial advisor who's in your corner and truly understands and cares about you and helping you achieve your goals. Securities and advisory services are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. The Way of the Toddler with hosts Lita and Lori Hamilton is a show unlike any other parenting program you've ever heard. Zen Masters in Diapers? Yes. Join us Tuesday afternoons at 5, 4 Central here on Toginet as we celebrate parenthood as a spiritual path for a journey to inner peace. With thought-provoking and spiritually compelling guests, each week Lita and Lori will explore how our children help us with the lessons we came here to learn, adding deeper meaning to our lives and relationships while giving you valuable gems to add to your unique parenting toolkit. Check out the website, thewayofthetoddler.com. With great humor and honesty, Lita and Lori will demonstrate how inner peace is possible even when surrounded by poopy diapers and piles of laundry and what we can learn from the innate wisdom and natural spirituality of our Zen masters in diapers. It's The Way of the Toddler with Lita and Lori Hamilton. Tuesday afternoons at 5, 4 Central, here on toginet.com. Welcome back to Paying It Forward, the show dedicated to helping every entrepreneur be more successful as we discuss accomplishments, lessons learned, and sharing those ideas. Now, let's get back to Paying It Forward with Josephine Girasi on toginet.com. Welcome back, everyone. It's Josephine, and I'm having a great conversation this morning with Dick Apley, who is a chief patent officer at Littman Law um, that is located in Manassas, Virginia. So Dick was just um, explaining that there are really four concepts um, in patent um, regarding patents as far as processes go, that um, the first process is you have to decide whether your your idea is really patentable. And now, I guess with that, we'll move on to number two. How's that, Dick? Great. Thank you, Josephine. And that's a great summary of the first principle. The second principle is that your uh, idea will have to be described in such a way that people can understand it and make and use your invention. You have to remember, as we said a little while ago, 
the trade-off is you are going to tell the world how to make and use your invention. And in return for that knowledge, you will get, in a sense, a limited monopoly. In the United States, you get 20 years protection from the filing date of your patent application. So that's the trade-off. And the description of your invention has to be such as to enable people in that field to make and use it. That's the trade-off between the two. The third concept is your invention has to be new. To me, that's an easy concept. It's either out there and somebody beat you to it, or it's, it's new. And the fourth concept, which is a lot harder to understand, is whether or not your invention is non-obvious. Meaning, if you um, say, I, I invented a new type of door because I'm using a different kind of wood, it may not be, it may be new, nobody ever thought of using teak for a door, but is it non-obvious? And that's where you will have to convince the patent examiner that it is a non-obvious use of teak wood. And that's okay. where most of the cost and uh, prosecution is about, is on that last concept of uh, is something obvious or is it non-obvious based upon all the teachings that are prior to your invention date. And when I say all, they go around the world, they can look at anything, meaning the patent examiner can look at any document that teaches the use of teak wood for a door. Well, that explains why they're 18 months behind schedule. It sounds like they have a lot of work to do for each and every patent. So that's amazing. But you know what? Um, Dick, can we go back to number three for a second? So you said that one of um, the processes is you have to make sure your invention is new. That it's a new concept. But, you know, my question is, there's so many different, if you were to walk the aisles of a baby store today, there's so many different, um, it's a, the same product, but it, you know, you use it for the same thing. But I, I don't know what I'm trying to say. I just, the sippy cup comes to mind. You know, a lot of people have come up with the idea that you put a string on the sippy cup so that if you are pushing a child in a stroller in a baby carriage and they throw that sippy cup you know it doesn't hit the floor and parents love that because you know the germs are not getting on to the sippy cup when the child um, uses it so but the thing that I'm saying is that there are different versions of that how is it possible to have so many versions of one concept out on the shelves well, let's differentiate between what we were talking about before. Who said all of them are patented? Okay. Okay, that explains that, it then. That, that may explain it. It's, it could be a simple answer, Josephine, that none of them are patented. And then it's down to just marketing. Okay. And who can market it best? The That's why that right-to-use search or the freedom-to-operate search and opinion that most law firms will produce for their clients is so valuable. Of course, it may not be available to anybody, but 
I'm sure your listeners say, okay, if if the playing field is level, I could outmarket Joe, or I could outmarket Frank. Right. I have better ideas. I have a trademark on my name that is just fantastic, and I have a packaging. Look at look at kisses, the chocolate. Oh yeah, I buy them all the time. I'm addicted to them. <laughs> and now, are. is it the marketing? <laughs> because the chocolate is, you know, it's chocolate. It's good chocolate. Hershey put, <laughs> makes a good chocolate, but it's the packaging that overwhelms you. Yeah, it, they and, really and the name a... overwhelms you. Kisses. And what could be better than to give, right. some, uh, you know, your spouse a big kiss? On Valentine's Day. I mean, I've been doing it for over 20 years for my wife, and she still gets a thrill out of it. So it's marketing and packaging as opposed to patent protection. And remember, the trademark lasts a lot longer than a patent. A patent, we said, is 20 years from the filing date, Josephine, non-renewable. Wow. A trademark is renewable. So it could go on and on and on. But so, Dick, with all of this that, you know, all this great advice that you're giving us today, my question is, especially with small businesses, we only have a certain amount of money that we can use for our startup costs. What do you suggest? Should we use that startup money for patents or should we just do it for the marketing? Which Which is better? Well, it, I, somehow you have to do both. Um, the, you have to do the, the due diligence. One way to protect your idea, and this is one of the uh, reasons that the Patent Office uh, came up in, uh, I think it was 1985 or 95, somewhere around there, uh, with the provisional patent uh, protection idea, which I'm an advocate of. It is a lot less expensive than the non-provisional utility application and it protects you for that one year period so for that one year i think most of your listeners who are starting to think about marketing or getting their business started giving them a one-year protection period a one-year grace period which is what a provisional patent application is all about i think is sufficient time Okay. Uh, let me throw that out to you. Is one year en- enough for most entrepreneurs? I think it might be. It just um, it depends on what stage the inventor really is at. Like, are they really putting a hundred percent of their time into their business? You know. I just know my circle of people that I associate with are mom entrepreneurs. And I know for myself, when I came up with the idea for my invention, here I was <laughs> having babies, literally at being pregnant and having toddlers at home. So it's not that I was putting in that 100% of the time. However, if somebody does have an idea and their kids are in school full time and they can really devote 100% of their time into their business, I do think one year would be enough. I would prefer that it was two because we all know how quickly one year can slip through our fingers. But if you're working full time, I do think one year is probably okay. Right, and if you couple that with the professional search, 
which normally takes a week to two weeks, at most three weeks, to be done, and you get a written opinion back on what the search shows and whether or not your idea is somewhat patentable. I think coupled with those two, if the search comes back negative, then you didn't lose that much. And then then you could go on and try to invent some more or give up on the idea uh, of the wheel. You know, it's been done. Okay, let me go on with my life and think of something else. It's only three weeks at most. I think people have that kind of time. And most searches are done for under five, six hundred dollars. And you get an opinion on patentability also. I think that's a fit. That, that's not bad to pay for what I call life insurance. Because oh, you don't want to devote huge resources if, to something that's already out there. And a, and a professional search will tell you just the, almost immediately that people have been inventing that kind of uh, device. Because one of the things that I found in all my years of helping inventors, Josephine, is that the, one of the number one questions small entrepreneurs ask, or even university inventors, or even the small inventor in their basement, is, I've never seen it on the market. That has nothing to do with patents or protection. Right. Or what, what, rarely does something make the market. Our study, when I was director of the Independent Inventor Program, we did a study, and maybe 10% of first-time inventors ever saw their product on the market. That's how well, that low makes it is. Me, that makes me feel pretty good, Dick, because <laughs> at least my glovies are on the shelves of retail stores. That's right. So. You should be congratulated. You're <laughs> within that, that 10%. Yes. Oh, that's hey, that's so another funny. rule we have, Josephine. Along with the 4P rule, it's the 10% rule. <laughs> yeah, that's hysterical. But, you know, we're coming up. We only have a minute and a half left, but I would love to know more about that 4P rule. It's so great. Do you want to just reiterate it for our, our listeners? Sure. I, I, In a sense, I simplified uh, that kind of, of analysis to four Ps. The first P is the invention should be practical. Don't waste time or money on things that are not practical that don't work, do your due diligence, perfect it. There's another P, perfect the invention, make it practical. The second thing is patent your invention, whether with a provisional patent application or a non-provisional, file something to protect it. That's the third P. You must think of protection because sooner or later, if you do get a patent, it will lead to the fourth P, which is profits. Oh, that's perfect. Well, I can't believe that was just a great, great summary, even of the whole show today. And wow, Dick, I'll tell you, I wish I would have had the opportunity to listen to this show five years ago when I was coming up with the idea of my Glovies, because I do feel personally that it has been truly an informative hour and I hope my listeners feel the same way and I just want to thank you so much so thank you Dick Apley of Littman Law and to all my listeners today thanks for spending time and Dick once again thanks for paying it forward have a great day 
thank you for being a part of Paying It Forward with Josephine Jirasi on Toginet.com. This show is dedicated to helping every entrepreneur be more successful. Each week we'll be discussing accomplishments, lessons learned,